May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts and minds upon those words be acceptable in your sight, Lord. You're a rock, our crucified, risen, reigning, coming again, Redeemer. Praise you, God. Thank you for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start with a, a verse, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Just kind of dive right in and allow, sometimes it's so good to just uh, read, speak forth the Word of God out loud. Let the atmosphere be changed. Let the air, the presence of God be, be drawn in through the reading of Scripture. And so this is going to lead us right into our, our time with Paul's letter to Timothy this morning. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, that brothers there, brethren, is an inclusive word for the whole congregation, okay? So finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, say it with me, think about these things. And there's a lot of wonderful stuff there. And I'll just admit to you that sometimes, uh, especially nowadays, but sometimes when I'm spending time looking at the news and checking out what's going on in the world and our country and locally and stuff, bleh, you, need, you need to lift up your heart and your mind and your eyes to the Lord and have some, some commendable, wonderful, praiseworthy things come to you to kind of cleanse the palate, cleanse our hearts and minds, our thinking. So this is a great verse that reminds us to do that. Today we're going to focus especially on the second one there, whatever is honorable, because that's what Paul focuses on in his letter to Timothy today in congregational life. So in 1 Timothy chapter 5, I'm going to pick it up at verse 1. <clears throat> First I'm going to cough a little bit. Here we go. Paul writes to Timothy, remember, young pastor, and he's specifically first speaking to him. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a what? Father. So that word rebuke is pretty strong there, right? The, the, the literal translation of that word rebuke, um, hints at, not hints at, it talks about striking at. So he says, do not strike at could be verbally, aggressively, or even physically. We wouldn't want to consider that, of course. But it says, do not rebuke, do not strike at an older man if he needs correction. He's speaking to a young pastor, right? He says, if an older man needs correction, even if it's a rebuke, maybe he's way off track, maybe trying to lead the people in the wrong direction, he says, encourage him as you would a father. So do what? Honor him as your elder. Give him honor. Show him value but do it in a way as you would to your own father, if your father needed correction, okay? Then he says, younger men, if younger men need correction, do it for them as though they were your brothers. Well, you would assume that there'd be what there? Some love there, right? As you correct your brother. So then he says, how about an older woman in the congregation? A woman who's older than you needs correction, maybe needs rebuke. How do you do that? Do that for older women as mothers, as your own mom. Okay? Be gentle, be encouraging, do what you can to be respectful. If it's a younger woman, correct her being rebuked as what? As your sister, again, with love and respect. And then Timothy is a single man, single young man. So he says, when you're rebuking young women, do it as a sister. Be careful to do it in what fashion? In all purity. Be careful, Timothy, with your relationships there. 
This is a good word for all the time. In our culture today, it's even something, you know, whoo, whoop, whoop, you know, warning bells and stuff. So for all the years I've been here, we've had policies about how I function as a pastor, you know, being super careful not to be one-on-one -on -one with a woman in different situations, uh, all that kind of stuff. Part of that is responding to this verse, trying to make sure that we do things in all purity, being careful to do things in a God-honoring way. So verse 3 is where uh, we first get to that, this honor word. Okay, so it says, honor widows who are truly widows. So honor, interesting. You look up that word, and I expected there to just be tons and tons of, of definition and depth and all kinds of stuff to it. And you know what? I was really shocked there was very little to a, a definitions in the dictionary and stuff. It simply means to value, to show value, uh, to display how much you value something or someone, that's what honoring means. To show and display your value of that person or object. So, again, I, I don't want to make First uh, Timothy about a defense of Paul and how he treats women, but feminists try to really tear down Paul in a lot of different ways. You can't. Verse 3, he says, honor, honor whom? Show value, uh, lift up and value whom? Widows. In this culture, um, <clears throat> when your husband died, the, the inheritance didn't come to you. It passed on to the, the son, passed on to other males in the family tree. It didn't pass to the wife, to the widow. They didn't have life insurance so much back then. Social security wasn't the thing. So in this culture, uh, when your husband passed away, if you did not have family, it was really a dramatic situation, a really rough situation it could be. So here Paul says, honor, value, and show value to widows who are truly widows. And you go, what is he talking about, truly widows? Either you are or you aren't. He's talking about widows who have no, literally no support. They have no children to take care of them, no grandchildren. They have no extended family. They have zero personal support network. When their husband dies, they are left all alone. In biblical terms, that's a true widow. Okay? So Paul says, honor widows who are truly widows. What does he say about them? What's culture doing for them? Eh, life is rough. Figure it out. No, no, no. What does Paul say in the body of Christ? Honor, value true widows. Don't cast them aside. Do the opposite. Look for ways to take care of them. Bring them into ministry. We're going to see here lots of detail. So this is, this is Paul being true to the heart of God and Scripture being true to how God feels about women and feels even about true widows. So honor widows who are truly widows. Verse 4. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just going to throw in some, some ex, um, examples here. How do we know that, that God cares about widows? Just a real quick rundown. Uh, first one from Jesus' ministry. Remember, 80, Jesus is born, he's a baby. They're going to bring him into the temple for the dedication time. Who's in there to welcome him and to prophetically declare some things over him? One of them is an 84-year-old widow, Anna, prophetess. She's been in the temple for most of her life, praying, fasting, because God told her, you're going to see the Messiah. 84 years old. She'd been a widow since she was a young woman. So right off the bat in Jesus' life, not even his ministry yet, we see a widow who is honored in a huge way. She's even named, which is pretty rare for women in Scripture, Anna. Second one that comes to mind, 
uh, Jesus in his ministry raised a widow, widow of Nain. We don't know her name, but the town was Nain. Remember, that's an amazing story. Jesus breaks off from his ministry direction, goes to this tiny little town in the middle of nowhere, and meets a funeral procession coming out of town. And it's a true widow. Her only son is in the casket. What does Jesus do? Walks up to the casket, says, young man, I say to you, rise, get up. And he gives her back to his mom. What was, and, then he, and then Jesus, he leaves. He broke off his, his highway to go down a gravel road to Nain, raise a boy from the dead for his widow mother's sake, and then he goes back onto the highway for ministry. What's that all about? God cares about whom? Cares about widows. Third one, the parable, one of Jesus' uh, more prominent um, parables about prayer was a persistent widow, right? She keeps going to the judge, give me my justice, give me my a persistent widow, Jesus uses in one of his parables. Fourth one, Jesus is sitting in the temple and he's watching people put their offerings in the temple treasury, right? Who does he pick out and speak glowingly love and honor over her gift? The widow's might. A widow puts in two copper coins, like two pennies, and Jesus stops everything and tells his disciples, look at that. That's the heart of giving. So a, a, a widow's might, Jesus makes notice of. And then on the cross, right? I mean, hard, can, we can't imagine. Jesus carrying the sins of the world, the wrath of God the Father for our sakes, all the things going on with the cross. And in the midst of that, what does Jesus do for his mother? And she had children, other children she could rely on, hopefully. But what does Jesus do on the cross? Mom, John's going to take care of you. John, be sure and take care of my mom. On the cross, honoring and taking care of his mother. So Jesus in his ministry shows this honoring widows over and over and over and over again. How it's, it's a huge thing on the heart of God. Okay, now let's go back to chapter 5 in Timothy, verse 3. So Paul says to Timothy, Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. I know older kids are like, I knew it! They had me because they want me to take care of them in their old age. There's some truth in that. There's a little bit. <laughs> but, but God says, hey, yes, this blesses God as you bless your parents. Um, kids, and I'm a, I'm a kid. My parents, my dad's 91. My mom's 87. Um, I'm still blessing them back for all the sacrifices and things they did for me as a child that I'll never really remember or understand. Uh, but I know they loved me, they cared for me, they trained me up in Jesus. They are deserving of my love and respect back just for that alone, much less God's command. Amen? Amen? Amen. Okay. So, if there are family, if the widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness. One of the ways we can show the world that we are walking with Jesus and following the Lord and obeying his commands is by how we take care of mom and dad. What if mom and dad are just pistols? What if they don't know the Lord and they aren't walking with him? Do your best to love them. Honor them. You might need to honor them by forgiving them when they need that. 
It might be on a daily basis. I don't know. Um, so, so later in life, you know, Alzheimer's, dementia, different things. Maybe it's not mom or dad anymore. Maybe they're, maybe yucky stuff comes out and it's like, that's not my mom or dad. Find ways to, to love them, to forgive them, to give them grace, you know, to give them patience. Find ways to, to respect them any way you can because that shows that you're walking with Jesus. You, want, you know, sometimes we went, God, I want a practical way to show I'm walking with you. Okay, honor mom and dad. It, it all, isn't always easy, but it's a, it's a practical thing we can do. Verse 5, she who is truly a widow, meaning, remember, there's no support at all. She was truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. You say, ouch, where'd that come from? We're seeing that in full display in our culture today, people. Self-indulgences, all that matters truly is me. All that really matters is me. My truth, my life, everybody else should take care of me. The government should take care of me. Um, everybody in the community should take care of me. So if a widow has that attitude, Paul says, she's already dead. She's walking dead because she doesn't have Christ. She doesn't have salvation. She doesn't have any, any um, attitude of love for God and love for neighbor. Right? So if, you, if you're saved in Jesus Christ, what are your two greatest commands that guide your life? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If there's nothing visible of that anywhere in that person's life, Paul says, they're living a self-indulgent life and they're dead. Dead man walking, or dead widow walking, I guess in this situation, specifically. She was self-indulgent as dead even while she lives. So he says, a true widow who has her hope and her affection set on God, here's how I want you to handle that. Verse 7. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. She says, let, let the widows know where they stand. Be up front with them. Verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his, <clears throat> his relatives, and especially for members of his household, say with me, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Even hell's angels give mom uh, happy Mother's Day cards. Right? Even pagans sometimes take good care of mom and dad. Jesus says, tell you what, through the Holy Spirit and through Paul here, God says, if you don't take care of the household, if you don't care of, take care of a widow, you've denied the faith. You are not a follower of Jesus Christ if there's a widow in your family and you're not helping to take care of her. Wow. Here's rubber meeting the road. Pretty, pretty heavy. Amen? Now, we don't have, I didn't get any amens on that. This is really strange for us, right? Because we got Social Security and we got life insurance, maybe. Husbands, if you don't have life insurance for your wife, I'd strongly encourage you to look into that. That's a great way to love your wife. Um, when I go visit a brand new grieving widow and she has no financial support and she's in dire straits, that's a double hurt. It's a double whammy. So be careful with that, man. But... Uh, not taking care of the widow here is not following Jesus. And he says, even unbelievers 
do a pretty good job with this usually. He said, let's do better. Let's be followers of Christ Jesus. Verse 9. Let a widow be enrolled. So here's what Paul's really getting at. A true widow who has zero support, but who is walking with God. Paul says the church is going to officially help take care of her. Not just take care of her, provide for everything, but the church is going to put, enroll her as a widow of the church. And we're going to make sure her needs are met. And we say glory. Now, do we expect some things back from the widow? Certainly do. It's, it's almost kind of like a, a nun's vow to serve in the church in this situation. A true widow who is walking with the Lord and needs support, she has the opportunity to take a vow before the congregation, saying, I will be a servant to the congregation. And the congregation acknowledges that vow and says, we are putting you on the rolls and we will help take care of your physical needs. Everybody say, beautiful. Okay? So here it is, verse 9. <clears throat> Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, meaning she's been faithful to her husband. I don't think it means if a husband died way back in the day and she remarried. He's, he's not saying, nope, you can't be on the rolls because you had two husbands who died. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you've been faithful to your husband. Verse 10, having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, she has a servant heart, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work. I counted them up. I didn't write the number down. I think there's seven or eight, eight or nine ifs there. We're looking at kind of like a similar listing to qualifications for an elder, aren't we? So what we're looking at is, is a woman who walks with Jesus in, a, in a, a faithful way and has shown herself to be a follower of Jesus for some time. Because is the church going to be taking responsibility for care for every widow that knocks on the door? Um, physically can't accomplish that. What we're going to do is, is those who we know are walking with Jesus, we're going to offer to take care of them. Verse 11, interesting. It says, Refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Now, there's some interesting stuff in here. Be careful with that word condemnation, okay? That's, um, if you see me cursing, you could bring condemnation on me by saying, Pastor Joe, that's a sin. That's the, that's the kind of condemnation we're talking about here. So here's the situation, apparently. Young widows sometimes would make the vow to be like non-servants to the church for the church taking care of them. But then uh, a gentleman would, they would catch a gentleman's eye and he'd come alongside and say, hey, what about marrying me? You're young enough, we could still do this thing. And then she's like, oh man, I'd really like to, I'd really like to be married again and take a chance at this thing, right? So she, but she's already made a vow to whom? A vow to God and the congregation to be a lifelong servant to them. So Paul's saying they're tempted to break the vow and bring the condemnation of, hey, you broke your vow. You made a vow. God takes that seriously. That's sin. But there's a strong temptation. Nothing wrong with getting married after you're a widow, right? Nothing wrong with that. But you've made a vow to the church. So here's, let's back up a little bit now that we understand better. 
Verse 11, Paul says, Refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. So he says, don't let them make a vow if they're younger widows. Okay, well, let's not put them in a position where they are very possibly, maybe even very likely, to feel pressure to break it later. Let's not do that. Verse 13. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So a young widow who's being taken care of by the church, they're going to have some time on their hands. Amen? What do we do with time? Well, we go hang out with people. We don't have a lot of responsibility ourselves other than now and then a potluck at church. Or, uh, there's, more. <laughs> there's more in that church life in those days, obviously. But, but he says, this is what Paul has seen happen on occasion. Uh, young, unmarried women who have no family connections at all, right? Zero family connection. He says, they fill their time, and that time ends up a lot of times going in a negative, wrong direction. Verse 14. So he says, so I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households. Isn't that wonderful? Paul doesn't, does Paul value what the, the wife and mother does in the home? What does he call it? Managing their household. He's fully aware that that's a full-time job, beyond full-time, amen? Don't just put in 40 hours a week. He says, bear children, manage their households, give the adversary no occasion for slander. The adversary could be whom? Could be the devil himself. It's not super clear here. It could be just people in the community who like to say disparaging things about other people, right? Could be either one. Verse 15, for some have already strayed after Satan. He says, I've already seen this happen for some young widows. They've already been drawn away and, and um, gone after these other things. Verse 16, he says, if any believing woman, believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. There's a balancing thing here, right? The church, we can't take care of 30 widows all at once. Um, so if anybody has a relative with a widow in, in need, be, be looking out for them, take care of them, so the church can focus on those who are truly, desperately in need. Everybody say, makes sense. Verse 17. <clears throat> so we've got honoring, honoring widows and a whole bunch of detail about how to do that well. Now verse 17. Let the elders, and that word literally is, is presbyter, it's, it's leader. Uh, in, in the way we function, it would be pastor, assistant pastor, um, to some degree elders. Okay, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. <clears throat> Interesting phrase here. So honor um, is that, again, is like honoring the widows. It's showing value, displaying value, declaring value. Um, that, that's the biggest part of it. But we also get our word for honorarium from this word, which usually refers to what? Dinero. Money. Okay? And that's definitely here. Now, does that mean um, an elder who rules well, considered worthy, should get literally double pay compared to other, say, pastors? That's not literally what he's saying, but he's saying... 
there ought to be um, acknowledgement from the people, from the body of Christ. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So we've got elders who run the widow's ministry. We've got elders who run the feeding the poor ministry. Those are all vital and powerful and wonderful ministries, right? What's the most valuable ministry of all among the elders to the people of God? Preach and teach, because it depends on what? What is our, our eternity depends on the clear gospel being preached and taught. Everybody say glory. Okay, so eternity matters the most. Everything else is important for sure, but when they're preaching and teaching the gospel and purity and truth and pointing us the way to eternity in Christ and how to walk with Jesus now, that's worthy of double honor. Verse 18. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So the idea here is, the elder who is preaching and teaching the word of God well, we ought to be financially providing for that person so that they can give all their attention to the ministry. Okay, make sense? Okay, thank you. Congregation has taken, care, taken good care of me through the years. Much appreciated. I've been able to focus my attention on the ministry. Thank you for that. Verse 19. <clears throat> Do not admit a charge against an elder, so an elder um, messes up, sins, becomes obvious. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Why not? Why is it not okay for one person to come to our elder board and say, Pastor Joe did this? Why is that not okay? Might be somebody who doesn't like Pastor Joe. I have a personality. You know, maybe they don't like my ties. I don't know. Somebody might have an axe to grind. Somebody might be a, a mole, an agent from the devil. So we don't just take any accusation from one individual. We would take it seriously, right? But if, if there's something that deserves rebuke and challenge and correction, we would want to know that, uh, that we're really working with something for real. We would want evidence that shows. So two or three witnesses, that would be great. Some kind of, you know, a picture on Facebook, that would be even better. That's a joke, people. <laughs> you can't get away with anything right now. Everybody's got phones on their cameras. But evidence. So we're not going to go after um, a worthy, excellent elder unless we have evidence that shows we should do that. Verse 20, what should we do if there's evidence? As for those who persist in sin, so, they, so uh, an elder has been uh, confronted with their sin. They refuse to confess it. Repent of it? Okay, now we got a problem. What do we do about that problem? Verse 21. Uh, verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Now, interesting that rebuke them in the presence of all, grammatically, it refers back to the other elders. But we know how this works in Matthew 18, right? Jesus set up discipline. So the elders, two or three elders with the evidence would come to me. And if I didn't confess and repent, then they'd bring the whole elder board to visit with me. And if I didn't confess and repent, they might bring the council members also in on the deal. And if I refuse to confess and repent, where do we go then? Then we bring it before the congregation. And if the pastor confuses, refuses to uh, confess and repent, then what do we do? 
show them the door. But at this initial stage, Paul says, if they persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. If we don't confront the lead pastor when he's messing up, what does that open the door to? And this is what happens in congregations. When the pastor's in adultery, when he divorces his wife and remarries, this is happening in America. And they put him right back in the pulpit and stuff, then what happens? Then the whole congregation knows, sin's not a big deal, I guess. Walking with God's not a, not a big deal. And it blows the whole place up. So we're not going to let that happen, amen? Verse 23. Fast, oh, verse 22. I keep jumping ahead. <laughs> Sorry, Lisa's going, what are you doing? Verse 22, do not be, ha- oh, verse 21, I skipped two verses this time. <laughs> Just trying to keep you on your toes. Verse 21, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Okay, when you know an elder and have known him for a long time, let's say, and you appreciate him, and somebody brings a charge against him and it proves to be true. Well, somebody brings a charge. What's the natural thing, natural approach? Well, that can't be true. I've known Joe for 24 years. The temptation is to show what? Partiality. What do we, what do we have to do? We have to take the charge seriously. We have to investigate it. We have to pursue it for the sake of the body and for the sake of that pastor's walk with God. Hard thing, right? Amen? But we need to pursue it. Verse 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, calling a a new pastor, putting somebody newly in charge in, in eldership. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. So if, you, if somebody has a brand new testimony for Jesus and it's really amazing, and you're like, we need to put this, he's, he's charismatic, we need to get this guy in front of the church and have him preaching and stuff. And you hastily lay hands on him and bring him up front, and then months later you find, oh man, this is going on in his life, this is going on we didn't know about. So that's what, you've involved yourself in that leader's sins by hastily putting him up front, not doing your due diligence. Um, example comes to mind, Kanye West. Who, who knows Kanye? Okay. <clears throat> how, how long ago is it now? Three years ago? Four years ago? He had an amazing conversion. Wow. Came out very publicly for Jesus. Uh, confessed, repented of his sins. Wrote some new songs that were on fire for Jesus. Started hosting his own church, like in his own million-dollar house. <clears throat> Um, Joel Osteen, all kinds of uh, TV preachers were welcoming with open arms and giving him their pulpit and stuff. Talk about laying hands on hastily. And why was that the case? Because he was a well-known singer. He was a millionaire, cultural icon. So it was tempting to put him up front and and rub rub shoulders and elbows with him, right? Blew up. Blew up. His follow-through was not great. Um, Yeah, didn't go well. Didn't listen to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Amen? Do not be hasty in laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Uh, keep yourself unentangled. Keep yourself on, on, track, on track. So verse 23 is, is really weird at first glance. comes out of nowhere. In your Bibles, you might notice it's in parentheses. So it's like an aside comment. 
you're having a conversation around the table, and um, you know, it's like, so around here, it's squirrel. You see something outside the window. When you're on a cruise ship in Alaska waters, it's whale, <laughs> whale, you know. So all of a sudden, you're having this conversation, a whole different matter, and somebody goes, whale. And then, and then you come back to the conversation. That's kind of what happens here. So verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Do not take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Verse 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. You go, what? What in the world? Talk about squirrel, whale. Where'd that come from? Probably was prompted by this comment about keep yourself pure. Keep yourself unstained. Keep yourself on track. And apparently what came to Paul's mind was along those lines, there were people in Ephesus who would take this line and come to Timothy and say, and you know you should never drink wine. Keep yourself pure. Right? Keep yourself unentangled. Never let wine pass your lips. I'm shaking my finger for effect here, right? <laughs> and so what does Paul? Paul realize that he's thinking back to his time in Ephesus, and he goes, oh, there's some people that are going to run with this. And so he says, Timothy, we've talked about this before, but let me remind you. Take a little wine. You've got frequent stomach upsets and stuff. We don't know the exact situation. You need to not listen to those folks who want to go off the cliff with the alcohol question, right? And uh, he says, so don't be an abstainer who drinks only water. Use a little wine for the sake of your stomach. Back then, a lot of their water wasn't safe to drink, amen? Why did they add alcohol to their water? To kill the stuff in it and make it safer to drink. So he says, no longer drink only water. Use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Verse 24. Back to the conversation. <clears throat> Laying hands hastily on somebody you want to be a pastor. The sins of some people are conspicuous, obvious, going before them to judgment, so you wouldn't lay hands on them. It says, but the sins of others appear later, so you should be careful. Take your time with somebody that you're considering for leadership. Make sense? Okay, thank you. Uh, but the, signs, the sins of others appear later. Verse 25. So also good works are conspicuous, even those that are not, even those that are not cannot remain hidden. <clears throat> Some fascinating instruction from Paul today. Fascinating passage. From details on how to honor widows women who the culture of the day would have normally hung out to dry, some detail on honoring congregational leadership, how to be careful with calling new leaders. Uh, here's the two things that jump out at me from the passage today. Honor true widows. Honor elders who are doing the job well. That means to value them, to show value, um, to, to display the value, to honor and lift up. So dad's little Father's Day thing for you. One of the more powerful things you can do in your child or grandchild's life is to show them honor, is to show them how much you value them. There's a lot of different ways you can do that. Spending quality time with them. Looking them eye to eye on regular occasions and telling them, I love you. Hugs. 
are powerful, show value. Um, teaching them the difference between right and wrong. The world is going hell-bent for trying to snatch children at the younger and younger ages and train them up in atrocities and wickedness and wrongness. Dads, one of the most wonderful things you can do for your kids is help moms by training up your children from littles up the difference between right and wrong and to be safe in their own God-given skin. Amen? The, the enemy is going head over heels to take our kids. We're not going to let that happen. So dads, show value. Lots of different ways I said God. And if you pray about it, say, Father, show me, show me some new ways. Show me creative ways I can show my kids how much I value them. Um, make that a regular thing. But now I want to close with um, two aspects of honor in the scriptures that really just blow me away. Revelation chapter 7. <clears throat> this is really kind of strange to me, strange to a lot of Christians. God actually does and wants to honor you. That seems so bizarre to us, right? We know how far short we fall God's glory. We know our, our sinfulness, our weaknesses. We know how much we need the cross. But God wants to honor us. He's going to honor us and show how much he values us. He did that most powerfully when? He values you so much he sent Jesus' his only son to die on the cross for you. Talk about honor. But Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. It says, after this I looked, when John's looking in heaven at this moment is when he sees the immediate aftermath of the rapture. When all the, the alive believers in the planet, well, I should start for, let's go chronologically. All those who have passed in faith, who are dead um, in the ground at the rapture time, they go first, right, to meet Jesus in the air. Then those of us who are alive when he comes will go up second behind them to meet him in the air. And then all of us, all of us are taken to heaven. And this is the scene that John, this is when John sees the scene. Verse 9, after this I looked, behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Say with me, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. Who gave us the robes? Where did we get the robes from? Did we grab those on our way up? We got them in our closets right now, right? Where did the white robes come from? God gives those white robes to each one of us. What's he doing in that? He's doing so many things. But one of the things he's doing is he's honoring us with the righteousness of his son. He's, he's showing value to us and in, in clothing us with the righteousness of his son, Jesus, displayed for us on the cross. How do you receive that? By believing and trusting in Jesus. By admitting to him that you, that you sin, you've got failures, you far fall short of the glory of God, you desperately need a Savior. And Jesus is the one. When you believe in Christ like that and you get saved and you walk with the Lord, he puts a white robe of the righteousness of Jesus upon your life. So when we stand before the Lord, God puts this white robe on us. He honors us with that. So clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, 
Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. What are we doing now? Now we're giving honor and showing value to the Lord God Almighty. We fall on our faces in worship before the throne. Verse 12, here's what we say. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and say with me and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. He said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. How does God honor us for, for loving his son Jesus, for humbling ourselves and admitting our need for him, for believing him and trusting him for salvation? How does God honor us? He lets us come into his throne room and be in his presence forevermore. Everybody say, hallelujah. hallelujah. <clears throat> These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. That's how God honors us, by allowing us to serve him in his temple, in his presence. He who sits in the throne will shelter them with his presence. Wow. They shall hunger no more neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. That's how God's going to honor us. He's going to take care of us beautifully, wonderfully, forevermore. Verse 17, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I know it sounds weird. It feels weird at first. But God loves and values you so much, He's actually going to honor you. You know what, what's it say in the 23rd Psalm? He's going he's to present a table. He's going to lay a feast before me in the presence of my enemies. He's going he's to anoint my head with oil as if I'm the honored guest until my cup runs over. That's God honoring you and me for loving and receiving His Son and salvation. Now, we don't want to get too crazy about that, right? But, but rejoice in it and then come quickly back to this place. I can't wait to fall on my face before the Lamb, before God Almighty in the heavenly realms and honor Him and adore and worship Him forever. Can't wait. Let's pray. God, we thank You for, for mothers for wives. We thank you for the opportunity to honor and take care of true widows, all widows. Thank you, Father, for um, pastors and elders and leaders who serve well. Thank you, Jesus. God, we thank you for this whole concept of honor. Um, you do it to us, which really expands our hearts and blows our minds. And God, we so long and look forward. We, we, we honor you today and every day in our lives. We really long and look forward to doing it face to face with this great multitude in heaven. 
on what a day and what an eternity it's going to be. We can't wait to honor you face to face. Bless you, Father. And bless us now, your children, as we walk with you. Jesus, in your precious name we pray. Amen.